Welcome, everyone. Excited for this week's episode of The Money Movement. I'm joined here today with Ari Melik, the co-founder of Big Time Studios and also a co-founder of Decentraland. And we're going to be talking about Big Time Studios. We're going to be talking about what they're building. But we're also going to be really, I think, exploring some of the bigger themes here that are that are driving an enormous amount of the activity and interest in the crypto economy, metaverse, NFTs, GameFi, marketplace models, what this technology is going to do for creators. And I know Ari, just maybe to kick things off, I mean, I think you think about this problem space and you have been working in this problem space for a really long time. And I think you take a kind of platform lens here, like these are things that other people can build on and economies can be built. And um, so I'm excited to explore some of those themes with you. But first of all, just, you know, welcome. Thanks for joining. Yeah, thanks for having us here, Jeremy. Excellent. You know, there's a lot of places to start. I'd love to have you guys just start with just a little bit of the origin story and how you got here and going back uh, into your entry into crypto and and obviously just uh, you know touch on Decentraland as well, which is obviously seeing extraordinary growth right now and then the origin of big time. Sure. Uh, let me start. I would say this project actually began its incubation when Thor and I and the rest of the Decentraland team were about to launch Decentraland. Uh, we were anticipating that as we launched the virtual world to the public, the corporate structure was going to undergo some changes in favor of full decentralization, which meant uh, dissolving the initial development company, setting up a new independent foundation, and setting up the DAO. So as we went through uh, that process, naturally, we stepped down from the management because there was no more entity. And Thor and I had very strong ideas about what things uh, we wanted to do differently and perhaps what things or what shortcuts we needed to take in order to foster adoption a lot faster. Uh, back then, when we were launching the central line, there were maybe twenty to 50,000 players uh, playing the so-called blockchain games. It was still very, very early, and we experienced firsthand a lot of the hurdles that regular users went through and all the hoops they went through as they tried to play these games. Back then, or maybe still nowadays, uh, players uh, were looking down on blockchain games and NFTs in general for many reasons. Thor would tell you that that's similar to what happened back in the day with uh, free-to-play when most games were premium. So at that point, Thor and I decided, okay, that we want to definitely continue building in the space uh, that we saw that blockchain tech was going to be an integral part of the gaming industry and we decided that we wanted to build a new company and start with AAA games or games for what's called the the mid-core to hardcore audience even though we want this to be very accessible but we want to make this for people that love games and uh, would spend several hours playing regardless of uh, whether or not they're picking money or the whole speculation side of things Thor, I don't know if you'd like to add anything to this. I think the two biggest things we learned at Decentraland, one, as everybody knows by now, is there's a huge demand for NFTs, especially in gaming. And then the other one that people haven't caught on to yet is that the barrier to entry for blockchain games is just incredibly hard for the average user. So one of the things we set off to do with big time was to uh, reverse that and, and knock down all those barriers to entry and make a product that could go mass market and allow 
people to get in a lot easier without all the hurdles of getting a crypto wallet or having to go out on a crypto exchange or having to deal with cryptocurrency at all. Yeah. And obviously, full disclosure, I think we also just announced you know, Circle and Circle Ventures is an investor in big time. And we're, we're really excited to be supportive of, of what you're doing and, and a partner as well in trying to you know, connect uh, crypto infrastructure and traditional financial infrastructure in, into the world of blockchain games and try and create those more seamless onboarding experiences for people, which, which is really key. So first of all, I'm, I'm really grateful for the opportunity to, to work with you guys in, in multiple ways. So uh, you know, thank you. I want to maybe dial back a little bit. You know, there's so much hype right now, I mean, incredible amounts of hype around the metaverse. There's hype around NFTs. There's hype around blockchain games. I mean, just at a level that I think surprises probably all of us to some degree. Um, maybe not you guys because you've been like believers in this for so long and building in this for so long. But kind of zooming out, like, what is like the mega trend? Like in your eyes, as people who've invented some of the the critical, you know, examples of this in, in the world today, what's the big thesis about what's happening with people and how they spend their time and how they and how they participate in in this form of content in these realms. I think there's like simplistic descriptions of it, but as practitioners that have been at it for a really long time, I'd love to hear you zoom out a little bit and just talk like your no pun intended, your meta thesis. I think it, what we're seeing is the intersection of three trends um, that are, are changing the way all this works. The first is around ownership. And that's really what the blockchain has really supercharged is the ability for people and not corporations to own their assets. And then the second one that's following closely behind that is identity, where you can own your identity instead of Facebook owning it to their chagrin. And then the third one is the one that people get really excited about, but we need the first two before we can get there, which is interoperability between metaverse worlds. So eventually where we're going to be is in this cool place that sci-fi authors have been writing about for decades, where you have your virtual identity that can follow you from virtual world to virtual world. And then you have your virtual assets um, that now you own, not some corporation in their database that you can also take from world to world. And it's kind of baby steps to get there. And it's cool to see that everybody has gotten really excited about it. You know, we've got a lot of plans about how all this comes together, but they're very long term. And right now we're, we're trying not to put the cart before the horse, right? And uh, keep things as simple as possible and build things in the right order. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Adding to what Thor said, there are probably some changes in, in the consumer behaviors uh, with regards to games. Like it's always been expected that you would buy assets and after you bought them, you will have very little control over them. Uh, for example, in the real world, you can lend a book to a friend or resell your album or whatever. But uh, in the virtual world, that has not been possible until fairly recently, even though there have been examples that were pre-blockchain about peer-to-peer uh, -peer economies such as Second Life, but with blockchain, it's a lot safer uh, for the players. I mean, the items are more secure. You have more transparency into their properties. And there's a sort of common standard for how these assets can be uh, interchanged and transferred. So the fact that people are now buying assets that they can see how many copies of these assets you have, uh, and you know that in the future, you're going to be able to transfer it, whether or not 
the game developer wants that. I think gives people a lot more confidence when purchasing. So people are maybe spending a lot more than what they did in traditional games because they foresee that it's not going to be all a sunken cost, but rather they know that the value will stay with them. And in some cases, the items may even appreciate as collectibles. Right. This sort of ownership, digital ownership is a huge piece of this. And, and that, like you said, it's, it's existed in, in sort of forms, but in an open, oper- interoperable, liquid way, obviously ownership is sort of taking on. What about the, the sort of broader, the, the sort of phenomenon of uh, play to earn and real economies, quote unquote, you know, finding their way? Where do you see that in, in the games that you're building? To what degree do you, do you feel like blockchain games are actually going to be a, a, a place for people to make a living, not just speculate or own and enjoy? Obviously, the entertainment and, and enjoyment is hopefully the, the principal thing. But where do you think those boundaries should be? It seems like a lot of people are going after that because there's been some hits and people want to you know, try and replicate the model. And maybe you know, as, as you think about where that makes sense, from a game perspective, it'd just be really interesting. I guess with uh, freely transferable assets, you have you can get economies that have uh, that are more innovating on the flow of funds side of things. Whereas originally, I mean, the model was for the publisher, the game developer, to sell items to the players, and that was it. With more open or player-owned economies, you get more vibrant peer-to-peer trading where you can exchange items for real money or time for real money. I mean, it's only expected that at some point, I mean, the flow of funds is not going to be only from the players to the developers, but also if there are a lot of people pouring time and money into a game, there will be other players who are not involved with the development company or the publishing company who are also receiving funds. There's like a super trend in the online world where each time more and more people are trying to make a living online. For example, if you look at uh, influencers, there are maybe 50 million of them that are uh, making content in social media uh, to make a living. It's like uh, one of the most sought-after professions these days for kids and teens. In video games, I think there's a lot of pent-up demand for that. You have a very small and elite group of, let's say, the esports athletes who make money by playing, but when you have three to four billion people playing video games and such a tiny portion making a living online, there's obviously a lot of demand for more of them to uh, pick up online professions. I'm not saying that the future of gaming is uh, like merging uh, play and work. It's just that more of that is gradually going to happen because uh, a lot of people are like expect uh, spending a lot of time. So it's natural that you're going to want to hire people online or you're going to outsource some tasks to other people and so on. Just the, the scale of the economies are huge and the, and the amount of, of activity. It's interesting. This is a total tangent, but I'll, I'll bring it up. You know, this morning, the, the uh, labor force participation numbers were announced in the United States. And so they look at, you know, kind of the number of people, you know, non-farm payroll increases, right? And so the, the news was there were 200,000, you know, new people on payroll. And one of the um, one of the people, actually, it was the chief economist of LinkedIn was on a television program I was watching. And she was saying that she just thinks it's just way off the mark, because she's the, the amount of 
kind of hiring activity and new entity creation activity. There's all these like there's startups forming at a record rate right now in every sector. And they don't show up in like the W-2 payroll data, right? That that people would typically get. And you know, it's sort of like how much of the real economy people are earning earning a living, but they're not getting a, a W2, a W2 payroll instrument from an online game, but they're making a living in, in the crypto economy. It obviously can be bigger and bigger. And it sort of says more about, you know, as you were saying, kind of digital lifestyle and, and, and things like that. I guess um, maybe kind of connecting back to what you guys are building, the concept of, you know, a AAA rated high production value game in some ways as sort of the anchoring of the platform that you're building. Maybe talk a little bit about first, just as you think about this as a platform, as you think about this as a, a platform for other creators beyond your studio, so to speak, what do you envision becoming possible? This game interoperability, a marketplace of interoperability is sort of the, certainly like in the vision. How far away do you think that is? And maybe just get, bring us a little bit into, you know, what you can share at least publicly about kind of your own roadmap. Sure. I would say when we got started with Big Team Studios, it was at a time when most blockchain companies were trying to do a platform play. And there was a bit of a scarcity of uh, successful applications. Like back in 2018, 19, everyone was still looking for killer blockchain applications. And the same translated to, I guess, blockchain games where you had a lot of platforms, but everyone was trying to sell uh pick and shovels to game companies that didn't exist. So we knew that the opportunity was in building content first. And as we started talking to more traditional gaming companies, uh, it was definitely way too early to try to support their blockchain gaming endeavors because there were none. So we realized that in uh, the process of uh, becoming a first party content creator ourselves, uh, we were going to navigate all the challenges that the game companies that we're going to support in the near future uh, we're going to encounter and master the solutions to those issues. So we've been pretty focused on building the game and the game alone for the most part, even though we knew that as we develop the game, we're going to polish a lot of tools and understand a lot of processes that then would serve useful to external companies, right? But still, we're uh, now focused on the game, and the game is coming out in April, approximately, uh, as an early access launch that's initially going to be for about 12,000 people, those who bought the early access passes uh, for big time. And we've been, of course, in conversation with uh, various game studios. What happened in the past maybe six months since Axie broke out and became a giant and maybe Decentraland and Sandbox to some extent as well, is that uh, traditional game developers uh, started having a, a more positive outlook for what blockchain gaming could entail and understand also that the opportunity was pretty large. So I think the timing is very good for us because we've been developing for over a year and a half. We are maybe less than half a year away from our own launch. We're launching the marketplace in a few days uh, in partnership with Circle. Basically, right now, we, we are about to start being ready to onboard other game developers and maybe give them the tools and our expertise and our marketplace liquidity. We already understand uh, what challenges they're going to be facing on many fronts, on the tech front, on the game design and economy front, on the 
regulatory front, which is non-trivial. You know, like there are ways to design assets so that they're compliant with all regulations. So we're trying to be working with uh, those studios that are uh, trying to follow the same path. And I think most importantly also who are developing with gamers inside. Uh, developing a game takes at the very least two, three years, sometimes a lot more. So, I mean, we're trying to uh, partner up with developers whose games can stand up on their own, even if we are in a, in a bear market as in the one we had in 2018, where there were no like quick gains as uh, you see today uh, in the NFT space. Yeah, that's exciting. And when you think about, I mean, yeah, totally like just the, the, the amount of awareness from creators, traditional game developers, et cetera. I mean, we, we've seen that. We've seen, we've seen that just in, in our own business, just the, the interest in this problem space. When you think about what are the tools that a game developer needs to build blockchain games? What are the critical pieces of that that you know are common, right? And and where you know building on on something that you know gives some interoperability, you know, where do those things make sense, and what are those? I kind of think of it abstracted up a level from that, as in here's the playbook that we've developed on how to successfully make blockchain games, or better yet, games for the blockchain. And this is similar to what we did with social games and MMOs before that, where there's a existing way that everybody's doing things. And then a disruptive force comes along and you have to change up your game and figure out what's the secret sauce to make things work in the new medium. And that's like our big advantage is coming out of Decentraland and already, already made a first generation blockchain game. We're now onto our second generation with all those learnings. And that's a big thing uh, that we offer to people who partner with us and come onto the platform is really a uh, jump start on everybody else in terms of, hey, here's a bunch of things you could do that aren't going to turn out so well for you. And more than just that, it's like, and here's the why. Here's the, the big secrets that we learned the hard way doing this, and we can help people avoid those pitfalls. Answering your question more specifically, some things that come to mind that people are, people need is someone that really knows how to design for these types of assets. Uh, like game economies are different now than the, they were before there was verifiable scarcity and before people could freely transfer the assets. The business model also changes slightly because it's not one to many or like many players paying to one anymore. There's a more, a more open economy. And uh, when we think about the type of players that we want to be able to onboard, you need a way for them to easily access the game. Like what I learned back at the central plan is that when you go outside the small niche that the blockchain industry is, most people don't understand what a wallet is. They don't understand MetaMask. They don't understand self-custody. So even though I'm a power user myself and I use that all the time, we're trying to design for people that are just not going to accept going down that route and who want someone to take care of the security of their assets on their behalf. And this has been sort of taboo in the blockchain development uh, world because you couldn't break those principles in, in like, uh, according to many, like you couldn't uh, transition to a system where you were holding assets on behalf of others, where you were not a censorship resistant, among other things. We're actually also going to be working with KYC AML checks because we want to be working with payment processing partners and uh, 
I guess uh, that's a bit of a of a tipping point from where we were a few years ago, where that was sort of unheard of. Aside from this, I guess to some extent, building community in blockchain is done somewhat differently. You have to be able to take advantage of different ways to incentivize actors, and I guess uh, that's another thing that uh, we have going on. And game companies uh, ask for help with. Yeah, right. Incentive design and and driving the different kind of network dimensions that that exist there. Yeah, it's been interesting. I mean, we work with Dapper Labs, and they're trying to you know create a scalable model across you know a lot of different types of content creators for their forms of digital collectibles and and things. And I think they also had the insight of you know NFTs, but with a, a user experience that makes it really really seamless for people to to get into those markets and and access them with a high fidelity experience and. But taking on some of those things like KYC and taking on some of the things that are needed to do these in a compliant way, but really making it accessible. And, and we've seen that repeated with, with other major sports leagues like the MLB and others where their partners are, are building similarly. So it, it'd be interesting to see in particular with games, you know, whether that becomes the norm, right? Does, does that quality of, of experience become the norm? versus you know something that is entirely just re- requires like power users to to get into the sort of more full self-sovereign you know infrastructure kind of kind of side of it obviously we'll see um uh, what, yeah what? i mean there are going to be like two tracks projects like decentraland where there's no place for like a custodian yeah and projects like big time where we may be able to reach a wider audience but we do that at, at the expense of uh, some, let's say, the the regular, the, the traditional principles of uh, blockchain technology. <laughs> yeah. But I guess part of the promise of this, though, is like at the core of your architecture are blockchains and at the core of your architecture are NFTs. And at the core of that is the promise of exchangeability, interoperability, and the ability to actually ultimately kind of have people move things in that way. And so it is ultimately about, you know, people having those kinds of experiences. I'm curious on that note, like how you see the market structure evolving around some of this. We have obviously like NFT markets. It seems like everyone's trying to launch an NFT market. You know, some are sort of very, very property or, or kind of brand franchise specific. And some are the proverbial like eBay or YouTube of, of NFTs. And so clearly, like there are people taking a crack at that. But how do you see the market structure evolving for NFTs? I mean, you, you see exchanges launching NFT markets, and you know, will mainstream end users be like going to like a, a giant exchange that's got like derivatives and options and futures and all kinds of stuff to go work with their NFTs, or will they be looking for something that's a little bit more tailored to content-oriented experiences? Like, how do you see that market structure evolving? Yeah, I think as the market grows, there's room and demand for more specialized or more vertical specific marketplaces. The NFT marketplaces that exist now or the ones that are popular are usually focused on digital art. Yeah. There are going to be others that are focused on music NFTs. That's going to be a pretty big trend. And in the past year or two, we've seen a lot more popularity uh, among the virtual world slash metaverse slash blockchain games category. And that's a completely different uh, use case. I'm not such a big fan of uh, digital art, for example. 
I mean, I collect some, but uh, I'm a lot more into game NFTs. And they're probably a lot, I mean, just as you see, there are a lot more gamers than there are art collectors. Yeah. And even though NFTs are making art collecting a lot more accessible, probably the, the market and the need, the, the market for uh, game NFTs is probably a lot larger. And the needs of those people are completely different. In our case specifically, we architecture our systems so that the NFTs could be inside of the game or inside of the marketplace without players requiring a wallet. Whereas the way most existing marketplaces are uh, structured right now, usually you, you yeah. need a wallet. Or if they are in the, um, in the centralized infrastructure of uh, a marketplace like Binance or FTX, you will need to connect that to the back end of the game. So yeah. I'm not sure how that would be done. Uh, unless they open up some APIs. But yeah, we built this with game developers in mind so that it would be easier for them to mint their NFTs and make them accessible to users uh, as they play the game. Yeah, that makes sense. I think it's obviously it's just fascinating to see the relationship between very specific platforms that are where the, the NFT content is tied to a spe specific application, whether it be a game or or an artist or or what have you and then and general purpose markets is fascinating how within big time and and what you're working on and releasing in the spring are there token mechanics that are kind of key to the the game itself we had uh or i had michael from star atlas on an episode recently and and they've made sort of the governance tokens and and then nft they have like a kind of multi-token economy kind of structure to it how do you think about tokens in the context of, of the game itself beyond NFTs? Yeah, so we actually designed big time our first game uh, in such a way that you wouldn't really need any crypto assets at all. Yeah. Maybe if Thor could give a, like a, a quick primer on what the game is, uh, so then we can expand on that. That would be awesome, yeah. Why don't we do that? Yeah, sure. So big time is a action RPG, kind of uh, a homage to uh, older games like Diablo 2, um, where it's all about killing monsters, getting loot, and then using that loot to kill bigger monsters. And that's the core compulsion loop. So what we did is we augmented that tried and true formula with NFTs, where some of the drops that come out of that are super rare, limited edition, cool items, meant to get around a lot of the problems that we saw like in Diablo 3 with our, our auction house debacle. We drew a hard line and we said, okay, we're going to have game-based items and then we're going to have cosmetic items. And these two shall never meet. All the NFTs are the cosmetic items. That way you're never uh, in a situation where you have a pay-to-win game where people can just come in with their wallet and get an unfair advantage over the non-paying players. What they can do is they can come in and they can really deck out their character and make them look really cool. So what we did is we created an arbitrage between people that have more money than time and people that have more time than money. That way, one side can keep grinding away, um, spending their time, and then the other side, who maybe are busy all week long with their job, come in and go, oh, I, I used to love to play these video games, but now I don't have enough time because of my job, my family, whatever. So instead, they can bust out their wallet and equal the playing field and buy up the items that they would normally have had to grind and grind to see if they could get them. And that's where the marketplace comes in that allows them to find the stuff they want and do it in such a fashion that it doesn't require huge uh, amounts of technical know-how to get in and, and get things done. That's the core of what we're doing. And then 
We've augmented that beyond that core model um, with some really cool innovations, the way tokens work, and also thinking about guilds as, as a, a first order part of all this. Uh, one of the interesting evolutions that we've seen is guilds forming for games that I haven't even launched yet and figuring out their strategies about how they're going to uh, play these games to their benefit. So it's really caused us to take guilds from kind of the back end of our, our roadmap to the front end of our roadmap and say, oh, okay. It's really a community first kind of development here, which works really well with, with what we're doing as far as launching an early access product, because that's all about community building. It's all about getting people involved yeah. in the earliest stages of game development so that they're you know, a co-developer with you. They're a partner. They're telling you, hey, these are the things we like. These are the things we want to try. So we're really excited to be uh, getting to the point now where we're going to be opening the doors early next year to our community development partners. It is fascinating to watch that the fact that these are, you know, community-based and there's game economies and people are investing literally their time and money in the participation phase of, of game creation. It's, it's amazing. It's very, very different than anything I've ever seen as well. That's awesome. If you had to kind of stepping back again and, you know, you, you've been through some evolution here in the blockchain space and, and in this space, and you look at sort of as a technologist entrepreneur, I, I like to think about like convergent trends, right? Like what, what are the things that are, you can kind of see are happening that are, you know, out on the horizon, which maybe in a few years are going to be, you know, more viable or adopted. What do you see looking out? Convergent, do you see convergence with new, you know, surfaces that people are, are interacting with, you know, whether it be VR, AR, or in the kind of fundamental economies and how these economies develop or the markets develop? You know, obviously at the end of the day, right, part of your thesis is just great gameplay and great user experience is what people care about, right? But when you think about the unlocks that are happening technologically, and the kind of surfaces that people have to work with, what, what do you envision, you know, two, three years or three or four years from now? The really big disruptive factor coming in everywhere is machine learning and advanced AI, where instead of having to program computers, we're teaching computers. And I think a lot of people in games haven't even started to think about how that's going to impact games but it's going to fundamentally change the way we build games. And that's happening now and certainly going to be happening in the very near future in, in big ways that really shake things up. And not too many people are out there chatting about that, but there's actually a lot of that starting to happen around the fringes. So that's the biggest one. What are some examples of how you see that being dramatically you know, disruptive to the way games are developed? or experienced? Yeah, I'll give you a good example. On the animation side of games, we started off with keyframe animation that we brought in from the 2D industry like Disney. And then that developed into motion capture, where the 2D animator got displaced by the motion capture technology to a large degree. What we're going to see now is where um, you have game observation capture instead of motion capture, where Instead of having to have someone come in and keyframe these character animations, they're going to learn from watching people play games. And then you're just going to be able to say, oh, I'd like a character who moves like this and has an animation set like this. 
And not only is it a huge cost savings, but it's an amazing creative savings uh, mm -hmm. where, you know, no longer uh, is your uh, development cycle so long that it's really hard to try out new things. So we're going to see a lot of cool stuff like that on the animation side. We'll see similar things actually where you have, instead of programming a character to act the way you want, it, you'll have someone come in and role play. And then you'll teach the machine from that. And then you'll get really interesting behavior where it feels much more like you're playing against real people than playing against um, some adversary that just acts the exact way a designer plotted him out to be. And another thing that I've already touched upon, I think, is NFTs and games exacerbating this trend of technology making opportunity more widely available, regardless of uh, where you are geographically. Like that's been a trend in the past few years as like the developing world gets uh, more and more smart devices on their hands. But as I said earlier, like I think this is something that Axie has proved out. You know, the, um, at some point, a lot of people didn't have a source of income, and you look up, into, you look into the internet uh, for opportunity. And the fact that you have these huge game economies where people are pouring, let's say, $150 billion a year, and the old model was that all that money was going straight to developers. But now uh, transferring value among peers or among players is a lot easier. It's only expected that more of that money is going to flow to people that are not developing games, but rather are looking to find their place in the digital economy. Yeah, the concept of you know what's the uh, internet's gaming GDP or whatever, like you know, <laughs> it's an interesting concept, right? Which is you, one would have never really thought about. Well, maybe certain people thought about it, but it's a real thing, right? How much economic activity exists, and it's not just the paying for content, you know, dimension or paying developers or distributors. It's actually the whole economy. It's super exciting to see what you guys are doing. And we're excited to see each incremental step that you're taking and the milestones that you're hitting right now. And we'll be you know, watching super, super closely. And, and again, really excited to partner with you guys as you're building this. Yeah, likewise. I mean, first, uh, thanks for having us here. And we really look forward to launching the marketplace in a few days with you guys. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks, Jeremy.